This is Colonia Cast, episode 47. Today we're joined by Dr. Richard Vetter, who is a veterinarian and teacher in the Faculty of Veterinary Sciences at the National University of Asuncion. Dr. Vetter has extensive experience working with pedagogized turtles and tortoises, both in the veterinary practice and in captivity, uh, as well as in the wild. Uh, we're really excited to talk to him today about this very specific group of turtles and some of his other work. Uh, we focused on on specific locales in previous episodes, and it's always a fun thing to do to really dive into a certain place. Uh, so thank you for coming on, Dr. Vetter. Well, thank you, guys. It's been a turn of events. It was me, actually, who contacted you, asking if you wanted to talk to someone from Latin America, and you, you gave me okay. So I'm happy to be here with you in this program. And well, that's, let's get started. All right. So uh, what first got you interested in turtles and tortoises? And what made you want to pursue a career as a veterinarian? We'll start there. Well, I recall wanting to be a vet my whole life. So it, it was the common thing for me. And it's curious because I'm the only vet in, in my whole extended family. I'm the only one who studied natural sciences or health sciences in that regard. So it's, I don't know where that came from, but I, I don't regret it. I wanted to be a vet my whole life and specifically a vet for turtles and birds. I don't know where that came from either. So I was always interested. I grew up with turtles. My grandfather brought some back in the day and I grew up with those animals. So I think that got me interested. And I don't know why I chose vet school specifically. I mean, biology was never on my mind, which would have been the logical thing growing up with animals. So I don't know why, but I, I chose it and I love it. And it's, uh, it's a new field here in Paraguay, uh, Latin America in general, but specifically in Paraguay, we're just uncovering the the superficial layer we're getting to know species we're still discovering species over here so that's it's a great time to be alive in this place and there's a lot to do there's a lot to know yet and that's that's awesome it's it's interesting and looking through um the, a lot of people from the united states when they go to school for undergrad or vet school, they just stay within the U.S. I and mean, the U.S. is a big country. There's a lot of things going on there. But for a lot of internet people in other countries, it's more common, it seems like, to go abroad uh, to another place for some level of school. I, I noticed that you've spent some time uh, in Mexico in, in schooling. I'm curious what that experience was like and what you learned there. Well, my whole formation, my, my whole career was in Paraguay. I did want to go abroad, uh, but the costs are just huge for us. Uh, I tried some scholarships, but I didn't get them. And that's sad. I mean, you don't have to take a grudge against it, but I still want to. I'm trying when I whenever I finish my master's, I'm, I'll pursue some PhD somewhere else. But regarding Mexico, well, that 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 strange part of our life, we call the pandemic. Um, I was stuck. I mean, the, I, I think everyone was. We were a year without doing anything. We couldn't do anything. So I looked up for some courses. I found this 
course, this online course about uh, birds and everything. And I did it. And the last module was uh, was there in Mexico. So I went a month to Mexico. I spent one week doing that, finishing my, my course. And then, well, it all goes back to turtles. Uh, I spent some days with Eduardo Gasol, a great veterinarian, a great person, a very kind person. He took me in. He works in Jalapa in Mexico. He has a huge animal clinic. And in his spare time, he takes care of sea turtles. So he he took me to the aquarium of Veracruz. We liberated some turtles. He showed me an island where they lay eggs. It was an amazing ex experience in general. And I spent some time in some other rescue centers with Enrique Yarto in Mexico City. So the whole experience was pretty intense. But it's not as much as a master's or anything. It was just a course I did in, in Mexico. That's really interesting. Mexico's a really fascinating place. I spent some time in Belize uh, doing turtle works and not super far away. And just the assemblages of, of turtles there is fascinating. You get such a diversity of families and, and forms. Uh, it's a really interesting thing. Maybe we, so we can, I think, dive into Paraguay's turtles uh, and maybe kind of start broad and then narrow down a little bit to some things that you've done research-wise and specifics. Uh, but I'm curious, just to start us off, what are some of the most interesting um, experiences you've had with Paraguay's turtles, both in the wild and in captive or veterinary uh, sit, uh, settings? Well, to start off, we have a great advantage that we only have 10 species. So it's pretty easy to get to know them. And they're pretty different uh, i mean if you don't know if you don't like turtles if you're not into animals you'll get confused but they're they're pretty different uh, that being said it's like three or four species which are the most so to say common ones which are kept at homes and that's the main experience really what we get in the practice what we get from our work with the Ministry of the Environment. We work a lot with them from seizures, from uh, taking animals from illegal traffic and they come to us and all, all the bad things that happen at home. People don't know how to keep turtles. And I mean, that's pretty universal. Right? Yeah. You, you can't get the <laughs> ideal or the perfect uh, place or space or food for the animal. But I'm, I'm hopeful we know a little much, a little bit more than than the average person. But in the end, they, the, the sad thing is they don't really care. They just want to have an animal, and the animal starts having problems. They don't want the animal anymore, so they drop it off by us, uh, the animal with many many problems, and we have to take care of it. So uh, it's mostly terrestrials. Calonoides chilensis, Calonoides carbonaria, and sometimes Kinosternons. They are the most common ones. Uh, they're not endangered per se. But the funny thing was working on the field when the guys from the TSA came last year, we didn't find any turtle in the field. Calonoides chilensis, talking specifically what you would call tortoises. Uh, so they're not easy to find somehow people find them and the city is full of them i mean talking in a 
five-year period. We've got more than 200 of these animals in the practice. And <laughs> you just know they're not okay. I mean, if 200 are coming in five years with management issues, with nutritional issues, with being run over, being bitten by dogs, uh, that's not okay. And that's where the problem really, uh, wh where we can see the problem. The problem starts probably somewhere else, but uh, that's what we can see. And then you have the other seven species, which are not very common in captivity, luckily, but they are the most sensitive, uh, sensible to uh, changes in the environment. They're mostly aquatic turtles and they're sensitive to, uh, well, we have the agricultural problems. They're changing the fields. They're changing the water ponds. They're losing habitat mainly. So they're not easy to find. When you find them, it's not in an ideal setting. It's probably when they're making bridges, when they're making rice fields, and but they still come to us. So I guess we're doing something right because we're getting the animals, but the situation in general is not very promising for turtles in Paraguay. Well, that's it's interesting. They're are they experiencing just declines in general around the, the country? Like that's why Chilensis is difficult to find, or locals are just out there all the time, and that's how the bunch of them ended up in the city. Like it's probably that. Yeah. If you go to the open markets, you find them in boxes, like ten turtles in a box all put together. What we could find out through talking with the finkes, they're the ones who work the most with turtles in, in the Paraguayan Chaco. Apparently these people have trained dogs that find the turtles and they're, and they're putting, they're, they're getting them together. They bring them to the cities. Probably some of them die, uh, but in the open markets, you see a lot of them, how they find them. I don't know. Now that's a pretty similar situation to the, like the terrapine in Mexico and North America that incredible amounts of them are sent overseas. And it always has me wondering how are they even finding that many of them? So they have their ways. I'm a bit jealous even. I mean, how, yeah. how do they find them? Yeah. I don't, I don't get that. That part is always blows my mind. We, we talked a bit about this to Peter Paul Van Dyke when he came on <clears throat> about that kind of where, where mm -hmm. it seems like a universal thing. I guess the money involved with it, it's just there's more incentive. It's it's unfortunate there's more money in the illegal uh, illicit reptile trade than there is in the, the, the good side of that. And so I think it just motivates people a lot. That could be something. Um, I'm curious, like how much research is being done. I, I did a quick cursory Google Scholar search for research in Paraguay's turtles and tortoises. It doesn't seem like there's a lot besides what, what's coming into your clinic. Uh, maybe you could speak to any projects going on uh, or what's what future projects could be good for people to look into. The bad thing is when you look about your research turtles in Paraguay, my name comes up. That shows you it's not good. I mean, I'm not an expert and that's how bad we are. There is, well, this year we started the Paraguayan Turtle Conservation Group, or however you want to translate it. So we're starting to work in group. The problem everywhere is you have, you probably have some few guys doing some very good work, but isolated. They're working alone. Everyone 
uh, is working alone and you don't know what the other one is doing. So this year we got together five, I don't want to call specialists. There's one specialist between us, it's not me. Um, but we're starting to share our work. We're starting to put together information. We want to get a paper out with a review of what we know about turtles in Paraguay. There's probably a lot of knowledge, but it's not published. There are people who know a lot, the Fincas, for example, I'm pretty sure they know a lot about distribution, about ecology, about behavior that's not put into paper. And you gotta put it into paper. The distribu distributions for some turtles, and they're not up to date. If you look at if you look them up, they're probably from from the 90s, from 2000. So that's gotta be rechecked. And there's got to be some starting to think about uh, conservation colonies. It's what we're always talking with the guys from the TSA. Someone's gotta start it. The the amount of turtles in captivity in Paraguay. Uh, you need to put a, a rescue. Uh, a colony. Uh, there's too much genetics getting lost. Uh, there's too much we don't know. I don't know if if your question was going that way. I think yeah. I think that that sort of covers it. There, there's just a lot of <clears throat> sort of gaps in knowledge about Paraguay's turtles. So a big open area for students, hopefully in Paraguay, to take up those questions and 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 formulate hopeful answers um also i i remember <clears throat> at one of the past well there, there's actually an interesting point that you made there about the fact that a lot of local people have a lot of knowledge that work at these thinkers and uh that it just isn't in the mainstream scientific literature uh i i spent some time in costa rica and i had to work on a bird a parrot project and it was there was nothing published about what the parrots were eating at all. But when you talk to the first the first guide I talked to had a 10 minute dissertation about everything he's ever seen them eat. And it's just like there's so much knowledge out there that isn't contained in research papers and that sort of thing. So maybe it's good to streamline that or at least get people to go out and source it and put it into something and credit people where it's due. Uh, but maybe you could I at the one of the past turtle and tortoise preservation group meetings. Um, there are someone, I, I, his name is David Fabius. I think that he works in Paraguay, but it may be Uruguay. I could have this confused. It's Uruguay. Well, I, I, regardless, I'm, I'm curious, some of the other people working with Paraguayan turtles uh, and and what you've, who you've networked with and if there are a lot of other people um, that specifics you know of and what you've learned from them. Great, yes. There's well, we've got the big, the two big uh, dams, Itaipu and Yasireta, if you want to look them up. Uh, they're dams, but they produce a lot of money and they invest that money into big research centers, what we could call a zoo, but not really a zoo because the main focus is research. And they're working with many animals. Itaipu specifically has some good experiences with uh, native turtles so i i've included one of the professionals from there uh, thomas gosen he's he's a great guy he's a herb lover and um, he's a vet but also does field work he works with biologists so he has a lot of experience 
And then on the other side of the country, we've got a rescue center called Urutau. The, the owner, uh, Holger Bergen, he, well, the cool thing was with Urutau is they've had the first exportation of turtles to the big rewilding project in Argentina, where the red-footed, the Carbonaria is extinct. So we have exported to them, I think 40 or 80 red-footed tortoises. So that's the first, first legal export of turtles from Paraguay, which is also an interesting experience, getting the animals healthy, doing all the health checks, doing all the permits. Uh, that's that's a nice precedent for, for, the, for the country. Then I have included a biology student. She's called Romina Rodriguez. She was always very passionate about turtles. I remember she started studying veterinary school, then she changed to biology, but she always had the passion for turtles. And I'm missing someone, Pierre, Pierre Cacciali. He's a biologist. He's a passionate herpetologist. He's the one I, I consider the real specialist. He's more into snakes, but he's working, he's actually working with uh, TSA projects over here, getting genetic materials. Uh, so that's the, the big group. And I think there was another question. Well, getting people included into turtles is a strange thing. It happened to me. Once you start studying, you don't know many people in, in, in the turtle world. But once you start networking, you you start finding the people. So that may be a problem that students don't even consider a career in turtles because they don't see, they don't, they don't know anyone. We, we want to try and, and reverse that with this conservation group we want to do symposiums we want to talk to the people in the field like you mentioned uh, there's been some interesting experiences in the field where you talk with with the people who live there and they know everything they know when the turtles lay eggs when they hatch when they're in the water when they come out what they eat it's it's amazing so there's a lot of information there for sure it's cool in a lot of situations how it's just naturally learned. It's not really something a lot of us, I think, have to commit certain things to memory because it's not we're not seeing it day by day. But there it's just part of who those people are or that that system that they're in. So the natural history is very integrated. That's it's really interesting. Maybe we can sort of transition to the Chaco tortoises, the Chilensis and some of your experience with those. Um, I'm curious, you've worked a little bit with those, at least looking for them in the wild. If there's anything you've noticed about with your experience in, in the wild about their behavior and habits that's interesting and maybe different than other telenoidas? Well, the Chaco is, the, the, the environment is amazing. It, it just wants to kill you. It's hot, it's spiny, it's dry, it's crazy. And for an animal that small to survive there, that's that's amazing. Uh, the problem is we, well, we're humans. We want to get up when the sun is out. And by then, this turtle is already hidden. I mean, it's, a, it's an animal that has to live in a 40, 50 degrees Celsius environment. So it gets up very early with the first sun, goes out, gets something to eat, and then it hides. It hides from the intense heat up until dusk. In the, uh, at dusk, it goes out again, drinks water, gets some food, and then it hides again at night. So it's pretty difficult to, to find. 
you may find them in, in their little caves or where, wherever they hide. But it, it was a fun experience because I didn't do any field research before up to last year when the TSA came here looking for that animal specifically. And it was my first experience doing field work with, with biologists, um, seeing how they look for turtles, where they look for turtles, directly applying everything we know about their behavior in the field is crazy. I, I'm talking like a vet because I get the animals brought to me. Uh, you biologists, you do the, the opposite. You go out and look for them. So it was pretty interesting. And in there you realize why this animal, I have them in captivity. And now I realize why they are not very active during the day. It, it makes sense now, naturally. They avoid the, that intense heat. And you also realize why it is so difficult to keep them healthy in captivity. How can you replicate something so strange in captivity? 40, 50 degrees heat, cactus, uh, dirt, sand, uh, heat, uh, very few predators, really. And in captivity, you want to give them lettuce, tomato, which doesn't nourish them. People don't even consider giving them cactus. So that's where the problems begin. They keep them in a totally different habitat. I mean, where I'm living, which is the other side of Paraguay, it's very humid. Humidity gets to 70, 80 percent and the Chaco is totally dry. So we usually find them with some fungi on, on the shell. Uh, they want to feed them daily. They want to give them water daily, which is not natural for this animal. I mean, the animal can be four months without drinking water and it's perfectly fine. It's even hydrated and they want to feed them daily. They want to make them drink water. They come to the practice because the animal hasn't been eating for three days and that's normal. I mean, it's even good. They're usually fat and well, there are other species in the Chaco. It's really interesting. I didn't find them yet. We're talking about Acantochelis, Acantochelis macrocephala and Pallidipectoris, which actually compete with, with one another. Acantochelis Pallidipectoris is a very, very difficult to find. I think there are like seven reports in our written history in, in the Paraguayan Chaco. The last one is from last year, I think. They live in very shallow water, which was usually normal in the dry chaco. Up to now, where you have the deeper ponds for animals. And in the deeper ponds, you get Acantochelis macrocephala, the bigger one. And apparently, they compete. The macrocephala is a bit more aggressive than the Pallidipectoris, so it shies them out. And the Pallidipectoris is moving towards shallow water, which is uh, getting fewer and fewer. So we're probably losing that species because of these changes in the environment. <coughs> then you have Timosternon, which is all over the place, very easy to find, very easy, uh, very difficult to, to lose. And the Carbonaria, the red-footed tortoise, which is crazy because if you look at the distribution of Carbonaria, you get them from probably Colombia up to southern Paraguay, southern Brazil. The distribution is very wide, which cannot be normal. I mean, there's probably some subspecies going around, which we're not really identifying yet. So that's for Chaco tortoises. 
with um do you have any idea what the macrocephala are eating or why they have enlarged heads or and why they prefer deeper uh, i don't know if this question is really great but or why they prefer the deeper habitat compared to the more ephemeral type wetlands i i should know that but i'm guessing they eat toads and small fishes in the bottom of the of the ponds the head is not really that big. I don't know why they call her macrocephala. And we have another species down here, which is the Mesoclemis van der Hege. Yeah. That one has a big head. The macrocephala is just a normal snake neck turtle with a normal head. I don't know what is normal in biology. Um, but that, yeah, uh, it's it's not even much bigger than the pallidipectoris. They're just... I don't know, the, the fascinating thing in biology. They're not very different, but the behavior is totally different. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting. It, <clears throat> thinking about the competition, it could be something where it's just indirect for food resources and one is just able to export or exploit one food source to the exclusion of the other. <clears throat> or that <clears throat> if they did have a larger head, which I assumed, prior to that that's interesting to hear that they'd actually be physically displacing the the polydipectoris and causing injury that kind of thing so there's multiple things that could be going on do you know if they're <clears throat> do the polydipectoris there do you find them with more injuries or is it just that they're using the same food resources i've only seen one uh, i've actually seen one once in my life and I'm still bitching about it because I got one in the practice. It's the classic wildlife rescue. The animal was in the wild and some person thought he had to rescue it because he found it. Yeah. And I was going to confiscate it, but then I thought I shouldn't. I have no legal authorization, but well, the animal got to the clinic really skinny. So I asked the man to to leave the turtle, to, to leave it to me. He said no, and he took it with him again. And well, that's what happened. I, I would have been really happy if he left me the turtle. Uh, well, there's a thing with the behavior. Apparently, the Acanthocalis macrocephala avoids the, the intense heat. So that's why he's looking for deeper, uh, deeper waters. During the day, he keeps in the bottom, and at night, he goes to the surface and eats. Probably the Pallidipectoris doesn't need this. Why? I don't know. But it's probably better evolved to, to sustain the heat in the Chaco. And so answering your questions, I've never seen uh, an injured Pallidipectoris. Macrocephala, yes, because they're kept as pets also. But Pallidipectoris, all the reports I've seen have been from just uh, biologists finding them, looking for them directly. And the last one was a casual encounter on the, I don't know how to call this, on the side of the road. There was a little bit of water and, and the turtle was there. It was really lucky. That's really, yeah, it's really interesting <clears throat> to think about that, that competition. I just assumed it wasn't the case that they would at least stratify habitat enough that it's partitioned and you don't get that, but that one is being pushed out to a certain extent and then potentially climate change and other things are changing that 
more shallow pool habitat. That's a, a huge recurring theme on here with the uh, the swamp turtles and species that are reliant in those ephemeral pools. It's going to become more and more. That's a, a habitat that's really threatened uh, with change. Maybe going back to the the going back to the Chaco tortoises, the Chilensis. Um, in terms of your experiences with them in the medical practice, uh, what are the differences that you see in terms of recovery of those and maybe some of the, the unique aspects to their physiology that make them different than treating other tortoises? Well, sadly enough, they're the, the ones I, I see the most, for good or for bad. So it's, it's a whole sequence of things. I mean, they get it to some home illegally no pet no uh, native animal can be legally acquired in paraguay that's the that's the thing i mean you know all of them come from illegal commerce i still have to treat them and well they get to a home they're fed inadequately they're kept inadequate inadequately and at some point something happens either uh, they're kept in the cold so they develop respiratory disease they get run over by the owner you know how tortoises love to be in tight places so they usually fix under a, a wheel tire and well the people don't look under their car before moving it so they run over their own turtle and dog dog bites in uh, accidents are usual we're talking about 10 to 15 percent of all the turtles that come to my practice they're either run over by car or bitten by dogs so uh, sadly enough it, there's a lot of that and they come with many issues i mean they're not just only broken but you see their shell and it's really thin because their nutrition was inadequate for so long they're totally under calcified they're weak probably dehydrated and it just sums up a lot of other issues, probably liver failure and who knows what else because they never go to the vet. We don't know anything about that animal up until it's run over. So you don't know if the animal was healthy before it happened and if anything else is happening to the animal. In aquatic turtles, we don't see many issues apart from nutrition. They come usually with nutrition-related issues like prolapses or just they die. But in the in the Chaco tortoise, we see a lot of accidents. Now, if the animal was kept more or less with a, with a good feeding, the chances are better. You see a skeleton that's tougher. You see the animal is tougher uh, in contrast with the animal with practically no skeleton because of the decalcification, those animals usually don't make it because there's just too much wrong with the animal. Do you see any uh, like shell deformities in one animals that were long-term captives or are they mostly like ones that were caught as adults and kept as pets? Like, Well, deformities we see in Carbonaria, in these yeah. big ones. And they're, fed, they're overfed with protein when they're small. So... With time, they develop the, the pyramids on the skewed. In Chilensis, they're usually brought already as an adult. So you don't see the skewed issues. You just see the very, very 
a thin skeleton even if you if you press them they squeeze they're just totally not hard soft interesting <clears throat> with the with accidents uh what is your preferred method of dealing or how much does the the method you deal with treating shell fractures and wounds differ depending on the accident and what is kind of your go-to procedure for that that's something that's interesting to a lot of people um it, in in paraguay as well as just anywhere else where this where that's occurring i think those road accidents are fairly common in general so how do you treat that well what what we always tell students is you don't you don't just treat the problem you treat the animal so okay it's fractured it's open but try to stabilize the animal first give them some painkillers uh, some fluids uh, get the animal to function because it it's no good just to close the the scute and the animals fucked up. I mean, yeah. You have to treat the, with painkillers, with antibiotics. You have to clean the wounds, and then look for for some way to close that wounds, which can be challenging in these animals because well, in road accidents you have all the pieces. You just have to put them back together. When it's an, an attack from another animal, from dogs mainly, you're missing pieces because the dog literally ate the animal so that's where it gets tricky but with road accidents you want to try to put them back together as well as you can and it can take some hardware uh, we use wiring we use uh, screws we use epoxy anything non-toxic non-lethal that can help can be used and it may look like third world country issues but if you look at the at the books from Douglas Mader, from Murray Fowler, they use these things because you need some tough equipment to to put together a tough animal. Uh, they use wiring, they use screws, they use uh, bra hooks for well, the the problem with turtles is when they when the skin that's attached to the scutes gets lo gets loose. You can suture it because you can suture skin to shell. So you have to use bra hooks. You, you paste the bra hooks on the scute and suture the skin against these bra hooks. And it works really well. And I, I used to do it. And then I saw the book uh, of reptile medicine and they, and they do the same thing. So I felt a little bit better. But you you have to work with what you have as long as, as it's not challenging but yes really important use painkillers use antibiotics use uh, sterile equipment use clean equipment at least uh, do some good to the animal don't just experiment with the animal right that's yeah that <clears throat> it makes sense how variable the analgesics you use for the pain relief does that vary depending on the situation or is that pretty consistent for across species and and types of injury there's always what you want to use and then there's what you can use or what you have uh, for those damaged animals the the ideal thing is opioids like morphine or fentanyl we don't always get that we don't always get that legally and we don't always have access to that so uh, it may be challenging 
in some severe cases i've used it but uh, it's it's complicated to get those medications due to many things uh, legal issues cost issues uh, we understand opioids are, are highly addictive so you need a lot of permits to to get them um, but it would be the ideal thing for the fractured animals mainly for smaller wounds i use nsaids uh, meloxicam mainly meloxicam the thing with pain management in reptiles if if i may talk a little bit about it for they're sure. just so different the, these animals are so different to everything we know in well in mammals we can use meloxicam and we know uh, it's an anti-inflammatory drug it works perfectly well you won't feel that much pain in turtles we're still in reptiles we're still not sure about how these drugs work because we don't still know a lot about their physiology for example um, in pain we talk about some enzymes called cyclooxygenases. i think it's the same in english we call them cox cox not what you're thinking about cox with an x and you have cox one and cox two usually cox one is uh, related to some normal physiological aspects uh, like uh, taking care of your kidneys, producing mucus on the stomach, and COX-2 is related to inflammatory response. In general, usually medication wasn't selective. You used to, uh, to treat uh, COX as a whole. And that's where you see most of the side effects of analgesics, uh, kidney problems, stomach issues, Nowadays, these are a little bit more selective. So you have COX-2 selective analgesia, which is meloxicam, for example. So you don't see as much uh, side effects as you used to, but there may still be some side effects. Now, the problem with turtles is that apparently COX-1 is also involved in inflammatory response. So you have to use these old medications, once again, uh, to treat pain in these animals. But it's fascinating because every time you get one of these patients, you have to do a little research and you, more than learning, you see how much we don't know about these animals and how much you still have to research about these animals. So to treat pain specifically, you can use opioids. Now, if there is some inflammatory response involved, you can use NSAIDs, but you're not really sure if it's working. That's the other thing. We as a human, we just administer a medication and we're just assuming it works, which may not always be the case. Maybe you're just administering something and it's not working, uh, which was the issue for a long time, according to some review articles. So that's the thing with turtles. I mean, you can administer a lot of things. You don't know if it's working. You don't know if it's working in every animal because ecology plays a uh, an issue there also. For a Chaco tortoise, for example, I need to have temperatures probably above 20, 25, 30 degrees Celsius for the metabolism to be activated. For, uh, uh, for a water turtle over here, I don't need such a high temperature for, for the system to be working. So you have to know where the animal is coming from. If the liver is working, if I'm working with an animal that's been eating crap for 30 years, I cannot assume the liver is working properly. 
maybe it's not even working. So any medication I'm administering, I don't know if it's working, if it's being metabolized in the in the liver, if it's getting eliminated through the kidneys, if the kidneys are working. Uh, so it's complicated. And that the <clears throat> talking about the Cox receptors, if it's if one of those that is not related to the inflammation or pain response is controlling kidney function, then I can see that's a really bad feedback loop because you can't get rid of it. And so it's just continuously piling up and, and that creates longer term effects. Is that right? <clears throat> that's why we usually don't take uh, NSAIDs for more than three or four days because that's the safe space. That's the time you can use them with no side effects usually. If you take them for five, six, seven days, you'll probably start having stomach ulcers and that's common to humans too. So you have to start administering uh, omeprazole or some uh, protective medication. And regarding the kidneys, if you have these animals that are in pain, probably not okay, you have to give them fluids. Keep those kidneys irrigated, keep those uh, kidneys working with fluids so they can eliminate this medication properly. Still, you may have some issues, yes, but you can make it sort of safe to administer. I Reading through some older pet manuals, they mention enrofloxacin. This is kind of an aside, but I'm curious if you know anything about some of the side effects with that and if that's associated with a similar thing to impacting more types of cellular cascades than is necessary. Enrofloxacin is the favorite drug for many veterinarians. It's, it's a great antibiotic. It's not really an, an antibiotic if you go etymologically. We call the antibiotics everything that comes from a living creature. So penicillin and some others. These are actually synthetic antibiotics. Anyhow, it works great. It's, it's still showing sensitivity to many bacteria, uh, unlike uh, many other antibiotics, which have huge resistance. So it works great. It penetrates almost any tissue. It even gets into bone, into brain. And that's mainly the problem. It has been shown to be neurotoxic in some tortoises, specifically Chaco tortoise. And then again, you get to the issue. I'm administering an antibiotic. The animal doesn't die. Is that related to the antibiotic? Is it safe because I administered an antibiotic? Or was the animal just good enough to fight the infection on its own? Uh, do I have to administer an antibiotic that strong? Because it's, it's, it's a pretty, pretty toxic antibiotic. Do I have to administer it to every animal I get? Or can I use another antibiotic with less side effects, less toxic, maybe less penetration into a central nervous system? Uh, usually we try to direct the treatment directly to where we want. Unless we have a meningitis, I wouldn't use an antibiotic that penetrates central nervous system. So if I have just some skin wounds, I would use an antibiotic that works good on skin and on soft tissue and not that aggressive, maybe even some topical antibiotics. But yes, enrofloxacin is used a lot. It has reported uh, neurotoxicity in some species, 
this is not always published. That's the other issue, but it's just personal comments of animals that died upon administration of high doses of endrofloxacin. And another drug which has been widely badly used is uh, ivermectin. Ivermectin is really toxic on turtles. And I've heard from people who used it and the turtle died. And well, that's the thing. Sometimes you just want to help the animal and you don't have all the uh, all the, the backing, all the information. I'm talking about vets who don't usually work with wild animals. They want to treat them as if it's a dog. Uh, that's the thing with antiparasitics in general, in wildlife in general. I mean, if you do a, a coproparasitology on a turtle, you'll find loads of parasites, uh, a huge amount of different families, different everything. But maybe that's normal. And that's what some, a vet that works with domestic animals doesn't consider that that the animal is a part of an ecosystem and maybe even the animal is an ecosystem for a whole lot of living species. And maybe even these parasites have a really important role to play in, in the digestive system. If they don't have these parasites, they're starting, they will start to have some digestive problems. This has been described in iguanas, for example. I didn't find literature about it in turtles, but it makes sense. These animals are living in an environment where they have to live with these parasites. And in the environment, they're not dying from parasitosis. So they're probably just uh, symbiotic. But something really interesting about this one case I've had with Hydromedusa tectifera, my only experience with the species. And it was amazing. I mean, everything about the animal is amazing. It's the the snake neck turtle in Paraguay with the longest neck. I mean, the neck is longer than the body of the animal. It's beautiful animal. And we found, uh, well, actually the animal was brought to us because it, because it was run over. And we found some algae on, uh, on the scutes on the top of the animal. As the animal was fractured, I had to clean the scutes to, to repair this fracture. And I couldn't get the algae out. They were so firmly uh, rooted in that scute, I couldn't get them out. So I took some samples and took them to a, a biology department and they, they described the algae. I don't remember the name. But then doing some research, this algae has already been reported to be on the scutes of turtles. So we get back to the thing. The animal is a part of the environment. It coexists with a lot of other species and they need themselves one another. So that animal, that Hydromedusa tectifera, is the home of algae, And we can't separate them. They, they need each other, probably. And the same was the case with some uh, flatworms we found on, on the plastron. For me, it was, it was parasites. I had to clean them off. But I sent them to a museum, and they resulted to be some temnocephalids. I've never heard that in my life. And then, again, doing some research, the same temnocephalids were described in the same anatomic region, in the same species of turtles in Uruguay, in another country. So again, it's it's symbiotic. They, they need each other. They're an ecosystem. They're part of an ecosystem. And you can't just administer 
antiparasitics to any animal. You can't just administer antibiotics to any animal because you have to consider the whole scope. And well, your question started with antibiotics and it got all the way through. Oh, you bring up you bring up a really good point there. I mean, I have some experience with sea turtles and my first impression of the barnacles and like ecto and parasites they had with it. Oh, these don't these are just a nuisance that shouldn't be on them. But no, most of a lot of those are endemic species you can only find on the sea turtles and uh, I mean rely on them. So this, the turtles themselves can be an ecosystem for parasites of uh, internal and external parasites. So I've just found that particularly interesting. And the <clears throat> the uh, that's a really interesting point. And, but then also like the microscopic level too, the microbiome and <clears throat> that sort of thing. I feel like that's an area that hasn't been really researched enough in turtles. So it just holistically, like you said, uh, it's, it's the organism itself is part of an environment, but it is an environment for all of these things at all different levels of, of, of scale. So it's, it's really fascinating to think about that. And it goes back to what you said early on about keeping the animals. I mean, how do you replicate that? Because if you don't have the natural environment, then do you really have all the pieces that are required to make that animal function at the highest level? Yeah. yeah well, talking about that, I'm pretty sure the animal doesn't know what it has to eat. It's just there. Everything is there. And how can you replicate that? Even if the animal itself doesn't know what it has to eat, it will eat anything you put in front. But in this co-evolution with a specific environment, it turns out everything he needs is there. And the plants need the animal to pass through the digestive tract and whatever. So it's it's really tricky to replicate that in, in captivity, really. Yeah. Right. It's interesting. Yeah. So maybe we can also. So there was a, something else related to this that is fascinating to think about. We haven't really talked about this much on any past episodes, but you published a uh, report of the blood chemistry of a Chaco tortoise. Um, maybe you could just give us at any level a rundown of why is blood chemistry important? What are some of the, the analytes you're looking at and what do they tell us? Yeah, it was not really chemistry. It was um, the, the cellular part, hemogram and stuff. But yeah, that was that was my undergrad thesis. And then my tutor published it. And it's I love it as a precedent. But now, after some years looking at it, it it's got some statistical errors and perception errors. But it's still it's still a nice a nice job. Well, blood things in animals is something veterinarians love. They get the animal, take some blood, and run on run down all the all the analysis. Just like in any other exam you do, be microbiology, be parasitology, even uh, X-rays, and blood is not the exception. If you make a test, you will get a result. That's universal. You have to understand the result. You have to know what it says. You have to interpret the result. And that's where it gets tricky. The same as in microbiology. You do your culture and bacteria will grow. That's normal. You don't have to treat every bacteria with an antibiotic. Probably most of the bacteria are normal, even useful. The same thing with, with, with blood samples. If you take a sample, if you run it down, you will get a number. 
But what does that number mean? And that's what we don't know yet, clearly. It's really difficult to establish reference values for turtles because of all the requirements to have reference values. You need at least, I think, 150 animals of the same species, of the same sex, of the same age, of the same place. And you don't get that with wildlife. I mean, if you look at papers, they're getting like 10 animals, maybe 50. But uh, when, the, when the number is bigger, they're usually from different places and it starts getting mixed up because nothing that we know as normal in mammals is normal in reptiles. We're talking about homeostasis. Uh, that is crazy. I mean, as a human, we cannot tolerate a three degrees Celsius difference in temperature. If I'm 36 degrees now, with 39, I'm in a coma. With 33, I'm in a coma. So there's little space for life. In these turtles, as they're ectothermic, maybe today they woke up with 10 degrees. They're perfectly fine. At midday, they're having 30 degrees and they're perfectly fine. So they're tolerating 20, 30 degrees in the same day and they're perfectly fine. So they're understanding how their body works. It's really complicated. You can take blood in the morning and take blood in the afternoon and the values will be totally different and it means nothing. Or maybe it does and we still don't know it. So there are a lot of changes in the body occurring during the whole day that will affect what you see in your blood sample. What we did was try to set some reference values for the Chaco tortoise. There is one study done previously in Argentina, a huge study. They, they sampled more than 100 animals, even separated results by sex, by age. And I think they separated captive versus uh, free living. We just did 35, I think, what we got in the practice. If I look at the results nowadays, I can say some of those animals were not healthy. So I would have to discard some of those results. Um, how do I know that? You cannot take the blood sample isolated. You have to see the animal and that's that. Uh, in a dog, you can maybe have only the blood result and you know something's wrong and if it's infectious, if it's even if it's bacterial, if it's viral, in a turtle, you won't know it. You have to see the animal. And once you see the animal, you have to direct your analysis. If you see an animal that's with a really bad pneumonia, for example, okay, you can take some blood sample and it will show you probably uh, elevated white blood cells. But you already know that. You know the animal is with a, with a respiratory infection. Uh, you can do some x-rays to confirm it. Uh, the value of the blood analysis in these animals is still not very well defined. You can do it, of course, but we don't know what the results mean just yet. And there are many other um, analyses we can do which may be more valuable for treating an animal. But you always have to see the animal. You, you just can't isolatedly take the blood sample and try to interpret what it says because you'll get confused. It doesn't make really much sense. It's interesting. <clears throat> that's not a, 
it's a tool, but it sort of just gives you part of the picture. It's not a holistic. That's yeah. The with regard to the Chaco tortoises, there's some we've talked to Maurice Rodriguez a bit about this. I think that's what we covered. It's been a while, but there's some interesting debate about if they represent multiple species or how much morphological variability there is. Curious in your experience seeing a lot of tortoises coming into where you work, if you've noticed morphological differences that are concordant or consistent with different areas, uh, or if there's any credibility, you're not working across their entire range. So maybe you haven't seen all of them, but if there's anything you've seen just in Paraguay. That's a good one. Uh, cool. Yes, there's, well, I did my undergrad thesis on that species specifically. So I had to go through all those papers in which firstly they separated the species into three species. Then it turned out it was not, it's only one species. And now I think they're separating them into haplotypes, the the Monte turtle and the, the I don't remember the name of the other one. But okay, the, the first problem is we don't know where they're coming from, the ones in captivity. Uh, we're assuming they're coming from some part of the central Chaco where we have towns and most of the traffic is probably coming from there. We don't know if they're coming from Argentina, which could also be a, a thing. We're just assuming they're all coming from the Paraguayan Chaco. Uh, I think Natalia was taking samples from the Chilensis in Paraguay to try to establish uh, genetically to what haplotype they belong. I'm not a biologist, so I cannot identify those uh, smaller details you do in a turtle. I looked at the ones they called uh, Donosovarosi, Chilensis, and Petersi. For me, they look the same. I have to be honest. For me, they're the same. Some are bigger, some are smaller, but I don't have the uh, highly defined eye in those in those things. Yes, it's normal that our chilensis weigh around 600 800 grams i understand the the ones in southern argentina get bigger i had one a few very few patients over a kilo and they're really big females usually so that's the stranger thing uh, they're usually very small which makes sense in an habitat where they don't have a lot of food don't have a lot of water and don't have where to hide um, but I don't have a lot of information about the subspecies in Paraguay. We don't know what we have yet. That's it's really that. So it's how a, much of a variation in size did you say you see? You got some over a kilogram. And I, I from what I remember, I thought it was the Dinosobarosi that was supposed to be the larger one. Do you notice the bigger ones being darker in coloration, or is the coloration from what you've seen is about the same? Like for, for me, it's really the same. Yeah. Uh, I should, maybe if I look at some pictures, I usually take pictures of the patients. The ones I have, in, I don't want to say collection, I have in the rescue center. Mm -hmm. uh, they're usually all around 22 centimeters long. Yeah, uh, so small. this medium, well, medium for what they describe, um, there, I think it was Petersi that were the smaller ones mm -hmm. around... 18, 20 centimeters, but they're small. Yeah, they're usually small. Uh, the older ones are sometimes bigger. I have one that's really old that's a bit bigger. I don't remember the size. 
I will look at the colors now you mention it. Yeah, I'm interested to see that. I've, I've seen some photos of like Donoso Borosi that are like much darker and, and very large for a Chaco tortoise. So unless I'm mixing up which of the types I'm thinking of here. But no, it, it's yeah. the Dono, the, the, yeah. the so-called Donoso Barossi was the bigger one. Yeah, yeah, yeah that's but how so in your experience, do you do you know much about how there are <clears throat> it seems like there are areas where Chaco tortoises will overlap with the red-footed tortoises, where the red-footed tortoises become more of a dry or more of a dry tolerant species with that kind of plasticity in terms of their habitat preferences are they really partitioning habitat where they overlap or what is the situation there? I haven't been there. It's a part of the Chaco that's pretty much inhabited, non-inhabited. There's no people there basically. And it's where it's, it's a national park where apparently both species uh, find each other. They overlap. And it's curious because you see the red-footed turtles, tortoise coming from tropical forest down to this dry Chaco forest. And it's crazy to think it's the same species, how they adapt so well to different habitats. Then again, the species adapts very well to captivity. They're very plastic. They're seen even in human settlements. Uh, they're eaten. I mean, there's some uh, native uh, tribes here that that feed on red-footed turtle it's even a delicacy for them uh, i contacted them once to 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 ask them how they call the turtles and they told me yeah that's that one is really tasty they told me uh, i wouldn't try it but uh, they overlap yes in exactly where i don't know i i know it's near a uh, national park in the central chaco I know there's no human settlements in the zone. It's mainly uh, cattle fields. It's mainly uh, that animal production sites, but they they overlap. Yes. Interesting. So I think now we can sort of go to the adventure side of things. We like to touch on the stuff that you won't necessarily get in a textbook or a research paper. Um, I'm curious where. Uh, I don't know how much work you've done abroad, but it, it, your most interesting experience working abroad, uh, or or it could just be in 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 Paraguay working with tur um, just on any case. Uh, it, I'm curious what that what your most experience. What, we'll go with abroad. What was your most experience working abroad, uh, and what did you learn while doing doing that? Well, my only abroad experience regarding tortoises was in Madagascar this year yeah it was this year uh, was kindly invited by the tsa to help them with some field work in southern madagascar and it was mainly uh, sampling sampling wild animals and the ones they have in their in their rescue centers they're doing an amazing work down there in in madagascar uh, the people are amazing everyone i've worked till till now in the tsa is amazing they're great people and they took me from Paraguay to Madagascar to help them with some field work. So they they really invested in me. I'm really grateful for that. As I said before, I had one experience working with sea turtles in Mexico, but it was nothing compared to what we did in Madagascar. The curious thing was uh, the, the 
the field in Madagascar, it was pretty much the same as a dry chaco. It's dry, it's full of cactus, it just wants to kill you. And you see turtles everywhere. I mean, it's the perfect habitat for these desert tortoises. And the, the habitat for, for a mammal, it's just deadly. It's pure heat, pure cactus, no water. Everything is adverse and they flourish in that situation. So it did remind me a lot of the of the dry chaco in terms of adventure. I was fortunate. I had a similar experience in 2018 <clears throat> where they helped support me get down there. And I was in eighth grade at the time. It was kind of crazy. But uh, I got to help with that huge confiscation of 11,000 on the second wave and was there for two weeks doing triage, that kind of thing. And helping with that it was just wild that, that many tortoises but the spot in the spiny forest area uh working in that area just it's a fascinating place did you get to interact with a lot of the local people or was it mostly what, what was that like i mean there you see how how many hardships they're having and they're still so so kind i mean we're talking about people who live in total poverty they don't have access to water they barely have anything and they're just so kind they don't know you they don't speak your language but they treat you like one of their own so it's for me it was an amazing experience they those people are amazing we camped on near uh, some human settlements and they're, they're great and they did also help us finding turtles uh, they they're really good at that they found the turtles in the bush they they even told us they walked a few kilometers kilometers uh, with the turtles to bring them to us and then took them back so the effort they put in it is is amazing and it it talks about the good relationship with the tsa uh, it, if it wasn't like that i would suspect something uh, something different from the TSA, but uh, the locals love them. So probably the work they're doing with them is, is also amazing. And it, that's really important in any conservation project. You need the people in the field. You need the people in situ uh, protecting the species you're protecting. It, it doesn't make sense otherwise. Right. It's only, it's, uh, yeah, right. If you come in from overseas and try to institute some kind of protection or change and you don't have any local buy-in to that you're not going to get anything done especially somewhere like that where you're seeing this rampant poaching of radiated tortoises that's pretty drastic it's good you need to really to fix a problem you've got to change the heart of a lot of people there or and and that's a lot driven by money and it's tough but like you said i i had a very similar experience with how surprising it is that most of the people there seem like they're a lot more happy than people in places where you have a lot more material objects like the US, but they're just it's they're just so nice and it's it's really incredible. Um, it's funny uh, you probably got the same reaction when they see white people they they get so happy it's it, it's funny and they they want to touch your blonde hair and it's it's pure love, pure love really. Yeah, I, I got uh, there were multiple occasions where because I was so young, it was sort of even different. Uh, but we we got 
at the, the last day we were there, there was a whole group of kids that came out and they, they, it got overwhelming at times because they do try to sell you things. And if you've got 15 people trying to sell you something, it'll get kind of crazy and you've got to just push through the crowd. But they all ran behind our car screaming, no pineapple, because we taught them to say the, the English word for the yeah, pineapple. That was fun. And at the, they, there were, there were some photos of me from there. They, did my hair. They gave me like cornrows and uh, th that was crazy and face paint and everything, but just really nice and, and, and fun to be around. It's just fun to get a whole holistic view of different cultures. And to see that is, is a, a really thing that I, I still pull on now. It, it was unique for me as a young person getting to experience a lot of that. Um, and it's, yeah, just a, a cool experience. It's cool that you got to do that too. That's such an incredible place. Yeah. Uh, so in terms of your veterinary work, I'm curious what, uh, for all the vets we've had on it, this is a fun question of like, what is the hardest turtle or, and just in general case that you've worked on or most interesting case? Okay, turtle. I have to say, there are very few times I get a healthy turtle in the practice. Uh, but, okay, the, the, the difficult thing is if the turtle is not visibly sick, but you know the management is not correct, you have to explain to the owner they have to change the management. They tell you, no, this turtle has been eating lettuce and tomato for 20 years and it's perfectly fine. And you know the animal is not perfectly fine. And it may go bad anytime, but you have to try to explain to the owner what changes have to be made and why. And that can get really tricky. Uh, different too when they get run over or when they're visibly sick, when they, the owner has to admit that something is wrong. So that's on the turtle side of things. Some tricky cases we got is with big mammals. Okay, big for us. Uh, we got some maned wolves. I'm currently working with a maned wolf, and it's it's pretty tricky to work with a maned wolf because the animal doesn't like to be touched, and it has to be touched twice a week to change some bandages and stuff. Uh, but we get some pretty cool cases working. Well, we're we're a national university, so we're public, and we work with the Ministry of the Environment. So any seizure first comes to us. We have to triage, we have to get the animal healthy, and then it can go to a zoo or a, or a rescue center or, or back to the wild. So we see many cool cases, many pathogens we know are out there, but we still haven't found them. Many pathogens reported in every country around us, but still not in Paraguay. And I'm constantly looking out for that. And we have... Okay, wait. once you start looking, you start finding, and that's that's pretty cool. We're now reporting the first case of inclusion body disease in, in snakes, something that's been happening in the whole world for many, many years, and we're having now the first report in Paraguay. This doesn't mean the, the, the disease didn't exist before that. There's There was just no one reporting it. The same thing with human herpes virus in primates, in non-human primates. It's something reported. I think the first report is from 1929 in New York. And 
2023 is the first report in Paraguay. So almost 100 years later, the disease is there. It's obviously always been there, but we're not reporting it. So science-wise, we're, we're getting started. We're, we're getting started knowing what we have. Once we know what we have, we can dig in deeper in many other issues. As I'm a vet, I like to go into the into the health issues, but there's probably a lot to do about distribution and ecology on, on many species. And turtles are not always the first ones getting studied, nor the first ones getting the money. Uh, but I think there are many interesting things we still didn't know from turtles in South America, probably. In sort of to wrap things up, I think maybe we can take a broader perspective for a second. What is, in terms of biodiversity, wildlife in, in Paraguay, what are the, the biggest issues currently? I think we've touched on this for turtles a bit, but perhaps you want to expand on, on that as well. But just from a biodiversity perspective, what are the biggest issues and how do we fix them? I have to say impunity. In a, in a in a justice point of view because the laws are in place although the laws are really soft down here i mean you see in neighboring countries people get to jail if, because of wildlife traffic you see this in brazil in argentina even in bolivia in paraguay you don't go to jail maybe you get to pay a fine which doesn't really always happen so there's no there's no problem really you can buy the animal you know it's illegal but nothing happens and one way or another you're sustaining the whole wildlife traffic through that through impunity uh, you see rich people having their garden full of animals i'm talking about blue macaws that are extinct in the wild in paraguay there are some crazy numbers some estimates blue macaws uh, Anodorincus hyacinthinus. I think there are less than 50 in the wild in Paraguay. So they're considered practically extinct. And there are more than 200 captive only in the capital city, in Asuncion. So why? I mean, tr there is no legal way to get a wild animal in Paraguay. All the animals, according to our law, you can only buy animals from a certified a breeding center and there is no breeding center in Paraguay so they're all from wildlife traffic and why does this keep happening um, probably all my patients in the practice are from illegal traffic I still have to treat them I, I love to treat them it's it's my way of doing some good to to the species but they're all from wildlife traffic why does this happen because people can buy them and nothing happens I can tell the police, I can tell the prosecutors, this is where they are selling them. I even know how, for how much they're selling them, but nothing happens. So it's basically impunity. Interesting. That's a, it seems to be a pretty recurrent theme. A lot of places we, we've talked about this and the turtle trade in Asia and such, and a lot of places uh, that's specifically like yeah so it's it's interesting to think about that and I, it's a tough one to fix because it's a political fix for the most part but i guess the best way to do that is to make people aware of it and not like it because it's a bad thing for wildlife 
Well, the excuse is normally the, the cultural thing that supposedly we evolved living with the animals. If you see the population in the city, we're almost all of European descent. So we weren't the ones living in the wild with these animals. And yeah. on the other hand, they don't, if they would at least take care of the animals. The problem is, okay, you start controlling this and you start seizing all these animals. Where do you take them? There's no place that could receive in Paraguay at least uh, thousands of turtles, thousands of parrots. What do you make with all of them? So it should start as a gradual thing, start controlling, start registering who has what animal and start uh, controlling they that they keep them well that they feed them well that they take them to the vet and at least make the that sort of ex situ conservation the people aren't keeping when i think about that there's sort of differences culturally i'm curious in how the, what the case is in paraguay but if you look at the united states there are a lot of people that have a lot of captive animals they just keep them not as much for a status symbol, maybe to some extent, but it's more just because they like to have a lot of things. It's like a, a very materialistic endeavor. Uh, but then you look in some other places in Asia where it's very much, I've got this animal because it's solely a status symbol and I'm not really caring for it. it where does Paraguay fall on that line of why people are keeping animals? And it's pretty much both of them, really. Uh, from okay there's the thing with it depends on the species maybe the macaws are some status symbol and the the more endangered the more status you have but turtles are not really endangered yet the i think the chaco tortoise is vulnerable so it's not really that it's more than need to have everything you see it's probably mostly a compulsive buy you see it in the market and you want it you don't know why you want it or you just buy it and you have it you don't know how to have it you do not google about their food you don't know anything you just have it and the moment the animal dies they get another one so it's not really an an emotional link with the animal it's just the need to have something uh, strange it's not even strange. I mean, it's native, but they see it as something strange. Is is habitat destruction and, and relationships between the people and animals, is that really a, an issue in, in Paraguay? Or what, what are the general outlook of the population towards wildlife? Again, it depends on the species. Uh, with turtles, I don't think it's an issue. I mean, they do lose habitat, but you don't see people... Uh, in, in problem because a turtle came into the garden. It's more with the bigger animals. We see those issues with jaguars, with pumas, with cougars, and that's an issue there. And the WCS is working a lot on those issues. Uh, we have that problem in the city, but with snakes and with the delphids, I don't remember the name in English, opossums, I think it's opossums. Uh, it goes through an aesthetic thing. I mean, if the animal is perceived as ugly, it's a problem. If it's not that ugly, it's not a problem. Nobody cares about some birds in your garden or a turtle. But if it's a snake, if it's an opossum, it's a problem. 
and you don't know why the animal is just there, but it's a problem. Uh, so there are some conflicts, yeah, but it's not general. It's more species specific with bats. The same thing with bats. People, they're already scared because of rabies, but now this sort of association with COVID and they're more scared, even more scared. But the issue is there. We're trying to do some sort of education with people. We get called a lot due to these conflicts. And we have to go to the people, talk to them, explain to them uh, the animal isn't doing anything. The, sim the, the sole presence of the animal there, uh, nothing's going to happen to you. I mean, the animal is just existing. You don't have to take care of him, but you also don't have to kill him. Just live and let live. It's called coexistence. We don't want you to sleep with the animal. We don't want you to feed the animal. Just let him live. If he came to you, he can go on his own again. But it's difficult. Uh, people are naturally afraid of snakes. People are naturally afraid of bats, of spiders. So that's where the, the, the problem is. With other animals, it's not a problem. With birds, it's not a problem. With fox, it's not a problem. Interesting. Yeah, well, in turn, our, our, we like to <coughs> ask a last question is interesting to hear the response from a lot of different people. But I'm curious if you could give one piece of advice, the most important piece of advice to someone looking to make turtle and tortoise work or veterinary work a career, what would that be? Do some research. Um, and then you have to get hands on the work. I mean, you, you can read a lot about turtles, but once you start working with them, you will start to learn a lot of things, but mainly you will know everything you don't know about turtles and everything that has to be researched about turtles. And, and that's where we are today. Cool. It's yeah. good advice. Uh, and at the end of every episode, we like to do a little turtle trivia. Um, so I don't know if you've got, I normally, I've said this about 20 times the past 20. I normally like to tell people this in advance, but I forgot again. So I don't know if you've got a random turtle trivia question. Honestly, because you've got such a holistic experience, we could do just general animal veterinary trivia. Uh, or you can ask us questions. We can ask you questions any way you want to do this. We could do a few back and forths. And if you're not prepared, we don't have to do it either. <laughs> that works too. Oh no, I have. I want to do this. Okay. What's new? Do you have a favorite species you've worked on? Mm. And why? But that works. Jack, you want to take it first, or I, I can. I have serious trouble picking favorites, but uh, I don't know if I. Well, as far as what I have experience with, it's really hard to beat alligator snapping turtles. Those are like, I, I won't like outright say that I, mean, I have a favorite, but those are in the top five, like of all turtles in the world. They'll never not be there. They're just one of my favorites to ever work with. So I would say. I think for me, it's, it's, I don't really have a favorite, but I have different types of memories associated yeah. with different turtles like the first research project i worked on was 
with Southwestern pond turtles. And that's, that's a very positive memory for me. It's still sort of ongoing. And then uh, the radiated tortoises also comes to mind. That was just a good experience philosophically. And in terms of uh, just learning about people at a, a larger scale, I think that's, that comes to mind. So it's like, I don't really have a favorite individual species, but a lot of different memories associated with different species. It's kind of how I'm kind of the same way with my, uh, my mud turtles in Delaware, but I don't, I don't talk about those a whole lot since I haven't, I don't know, haven't published anything yet. So, but that's, that's very close to my heart. Those, those turtles. So. That's the thing, really, you can choose a favorite. You, you would be setting aside all the rest. Yeah. And that's not fair either. I mean, you just love all of them. It's like picking your favorite child. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, that's a good way of putting it. Yeah, when you're, yeah, right. You're interested in all, yeah. It's like for us too, I think a lot of the appeal is being interested in all of them, all of the turtles. So it's like for certain people, they like to specialize and it's, you'll meet people that are just experts in one thing, which is cool too, but it's different for us. How about you? That We'll throw that question back at you. I think that's, an, what's the favorite taxa you've worked with? Well, obviously, turtles have been an important part of my still short-lived experience. But the whole experience regarding the, the one case of Hydromedusa tectifera, it, it was amazing. Everything I learned and the, the way that animal opened the scope about all the symbionts and all the, the, the ecology of the animal and the ecology around the animal, that was an amazing experience. So that's definitely one of my favorite animals because of everything it, it hap that happened around the, the animal. It was a range extension too, correct? Yep. And, and that's back to what we talked in the beginning. The local population know that species is there forever. I mean, it was always there and people knew it. Just no one, no one ever published it. It's interesting. We In the Belize work that we did, uh, this is a little different, but the narrow bridge musk turtle, those ones we found that they were, it's, I think it was about an 80 kilometer range extension where we, we were trapping them. They know it, it's an interesting case because it's a, it was, we worked at a field station that's kind of removed from a lot of areas. So I don't think there were people there that knew about. And I, I guess it's it's not really comparable because this was literally just an extension that no one seemed to know about. Although some of the people that had worked there had talked about seeing turtles that look like that crossing the road at times in the past. And it was like, I think that there were definitely run-ins with them. And it's just that as Western biologists, we didn't, we hadn't seen them. So it, it now is in the literature and I think that's valuable, but it's like, yeah, the local knowledge is more extensive then I think we give credit to a lot of the time. So it's definitely good. I don't know if you've got any more trivia questions or we can, we can uh, wrap up. Oh but, no, I'm dry. Okay, <laughs> cool. Well, we can, yeah, we can wrap this one up. Um, if, if you've got anything else to say, uh, but if not, um, it's been, well, I'm really grateful. I'm grateful for your, for your time. Thank you. As are we. It's uh, it's really been an honor to talk with you today. Uh, it's for me personally really interesting to focus 
on a specific area in, in its turtle assemblage, but also some of your veterinary work. It was fun to jump between those two things. And, and your knowledge is really extensive. So um, it, it was really fun to dive into some of those subjects. And Colonia Cast came down to Paraguay. That's the first one. That's true. Yeah, I think, yeah, we've done, what are we, it's in South America now, we've got, well, we've done, we have people that represent Brazil, Argentina. Colombia? Yeah, Colombia, yes. So, four South American countries, so we've got to keep expanding that. So if you know, if you know anyone in Bolivia, Chile, uh, Ecuador, I guess, well, we, we could, yeah, Galapagos for that. Um, yeah, Galapagos yeah. is one too. And Uruguay, we can, those are all, and Venezuela, <laughs> we've still got some stuff to do there. So, uh, but thank you, Dr. Vetter. It's, it's been a pleasure. Um, and thanks for everyone listening. This has been episode 47. <laughs>